Hello, my name is Dr. Kara King. Hi, I'm Dr. Mary Rensel, and we are your host for Inspirations and Insights from Cleveland Clinic Women Docs. In this podcast, we will share conversations with women doctors from all career stages and practices, exploring the highlights and challenges of being a woman in medicine. We hope these thought-provoking stories inspire you and provide insight into the unique challenges and accomplishments of remarkable women docs. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Inspirations and Insights. We are extremely excited to have Dr. Shumita Khatri on our show today. Dr. Khatri is a professor of medicine at the Cleveland Clinic Loner College of Medicine, vice chair of the Respiratory Institute, director of the Asthma Center, and a practicing adult pulmonary and ICU physician. She serves on the national board of the American Lung Association and is a founder of FLEX, an amazing leadership development program for women faculty of the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. This program is absolutely amazing and provides training and skills development to help talented women advance their careers for national as well as international leadership opportunities. This program to date has graduated over 160 women faculty. She is truly a visionary and a transformational leader. On today's episode, Dr. Khatri discusses the importance of building credibility and trust with colleagues and patients and having the confidence to live your purpose with authenticity, humor, and empathy. We hope you enjoy. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Sumitra Khatri. Sumitra, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here with you. How are you? I'm doing really well. Excellent. Thank you for taking your time for us here at the WPSA podcast land. We're honored to have you. I want to start with the FLEX program. Can you tell us about the early days? Can you tell us about the program number one and the early days of why that was born and how it has flourished over the years? Well, there's a fun story behind that, oh, good. which I guess you might like good stories, mm-hmm. right? So it was during one of our women's professional conferences that I happened to go to a session on executive presence. And it was about 45 minutes long as one of the great uh, breakout sessions. And I was curious about what that really meant. And the presenters were so impressive because we were sitting there and we were just sort of reflecting on how is it that you deliver a compelling message? How do you do it as you mean it? And what are some tips and tricks to make it more effective? And literally, in 45 minutes, posture, breath, diction was covered such that I was like, oh my goodness, I can do this. And everyone else was sort of transformed in that 45 minutes. And I thought, is that really all there is to this? And I realized that most of us are good communicators. We're smart, but we're not always good at advocating for ourselves in a moment. So it was with that experience that soon after that, I was elected president of the Women's Professional Staff Association at no, actually, not the president of the Women Professional Staff Association. It was the Women Faculty School of Medicine, which is the sort of counterpart at Case. And I became president, and I was really interested in how it was a networking organization and social, yet I felt that there was room for it to become more of an advocacy organization and skill-building organization. So soon I was meeting with Dean Davis, our woman dean at the time, who I really admired. And I said to her, I said, you know, what we'd really like to do is start a program where we teach or 
provide skills on executive presence. And she said, you know, what's it going to be like? And I told her I have a whole proposal and everything. And there were witnesses in the room. Otherwise, I would never believe that it happened. And I told her, I said, you know, we can have all the policies we want, but it is ultimately up to each one of us to advocate for ourselves in the moment for what we need and what we want. And uh, she said, hmm, okay, do it. And I was like, okay, did I just imagine it? And then, you know, she, um, everyone sort of went on and, and their jaws dropped to the ground. It was like one of those boardroom moments. There were witnesses though. And I then asked her probably about five, 10 minutes later as it was still sinking in. I said, so Dean Davis, um, when you said do it, did you mean like do it, do it? <laughs> and she's like, uh, yes, Shamita, that's what I meant. I'm like, okay. So ever since then, I know to take her very seriously. So that's the story, right? That is the story that is proof of the pudding, right? Where I had learned something. I felt that that had some value for a lot more people than just me. And that was perhaps the missing link in so many women's careers where they don't sit there and advocate for themselves in a credible way. It's always the lilting upward voice or somewhat apologetic or I'm not going to do this. No, go in and ask for it. So, and then I did and we got it. And so, you know, I helped run the program for nine years. We had 160 women go through it, including some of the very, very respected women physicians who are here leaders at Cleveland Clinic. And, you know, that's a self-selected bias, of course. They were already going to lead, but it was really amazing the community it created and our outcomes are good. People, 90% of people were achieving their goals or moving closer to their goals. So I know it's a longer story, I didn't say it was going to be concise, but <laughs> it gives you the trajectory of the story of how it began and how it proved a point and how it's really a ripple effect going forward. Wonderful. Well, I, I love that you put all that time and energy into that and have had such successes and the success has kind of rippled through our whole enterprise. So thank you for all the hard work you've done, because I know that doesn't come easy. There's a lot of hours and hours of hard work in there. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Speaking of advocacy, I mean, you also maybe you use those same skills to advocate for patients. So we see you talking about air pollution and COVID vaccines and lung health. And tell us about that journey as well. The advocacy, the same, you know, the strong communication, but yet for patient care and, and public health. Well, one-on-one -on -one with patients, I've sort of been that way probably since I was little, I was always a friend of the person who was the other in the classroom, the one who didn't have a friend. I'd be sitting there with them. And of course, that limited my friend group too, because no one else was sitting with us. So it didn't matter to me. I was just not able to handle anybody being lonely. So I just remember even back to elementary school and oh my gosh, those times of bullying in, uh, I was just thinking about that today, bullying in middle school and you know, just actually being the, the shrimp that used to get in the way and, and tell people to stop doing what they were doing. So I guess that is the vein that probably, vein of advocate that is probably a, a theme in my life. And then I admired somebody who was a physician and then I went into medicine and then I always felt like the people who needed it most weren't the ones getting the health care they needed. So I was thinking I'd go work in the country somewhere and you know be that country doc. And then my father told me, he said, you know, Shamita, if you have a platform like the Cleveland Clinic and get a specialty, you could actually make a difference across a broader scale. So long story short, that's kind of where I am still one-on-one -on -one with patients. Absolutely. When 
I get some of the more mystery shortness of breath patients or the ones who actually lungs aren't the issue anymore, but I won't leave them behind as they figure things out. And then got involved with more of volunteer work with the American Lung Association. And through that, you know, just being me, I mean, I didn't even know what a board was, right? And this was 15 years ago. I didn't know what a board was of an organization. And they nominated me. I became regional board, then regional board over the states, and then nominated to the national board. And now I'm the vice chair of the board, national board of board for that volunteer organization. And I'm actually driving a lot of the mission and programs behind the scenes. So talk about platform. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to be in front of the scenes. They do the work for us and, and with us. And it's just really fascinating. The people I have been able to meet, even recently, getting credibility and trying to build trust and empathy to make change on a larger scale. I love it. I love it. Thank you for all that you do there, too. Jeez. Woo. I hope you get to rest periodically. Um, I, I Sometimes I sneak in a little public health on these podcasts. So if you want someone, if we have you know some ears of some people that aren't usually in front of a lung doctor, what do you want people to know? What's something they can do to keep their lungs healthy? I know you're so good at this advocacy work. I mean, if there were a time that we didn't need proof of climate change, it is now because we are seeing it all around us. I mean, it has come at warp speed. We were hoping to uh, get there by 2030 by reducing our climate warming by two degrees. And now we made it more ambitious at 1.5 degrees and we are not going to hit that mark. And as a lung doctor, I'm seeing that changes in allergies and the allergenicity of allergens, right? With the longer springs, longer falls, shorter winters, the, the whole types of allergies there are has changed. So for people with allergies, they're suffering longer. With the extreme weather, they're suffering um, during the extreme cold or the uh, hot heat and then uh, moisture causing more mold as well. So it's, it affects everybody, but people with lung disease more frequently. So that's one major thing that we need to advocate really among measures to clean up our use of fossil fuels and the way we use energy so that we can reduce our carbon footprint. On the other hand, indoor air quality is also a major issue. I think we're seeing all the stuff about the clean building seals, you know, on commercials and everything. And there's something to be said about that because that's where we normally spend 90% of our time and during the pandemic, like 99% of the time indoors. And so just being mindful of the pollutants inside, like the dust and the particles and even gas stoves, if you're not ventilating properly, uh, just to be aware so that um, we are all trying to breathe the cleanest air possible. Thank you. And for those, this is just a podcast, you can't see her, but every time she's talking about this, she's looking outside. And it's really amazing because she's, you know, she's showing us with her, her face, her expressions on her face, how, how, how much she cares about a healthy environment for her patients. So, yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you for all you've done. All right. So I have been so excited for our interview today. I'm going to be honest. Really? Yes. You say that to everyone. No, yes, I really are. don't. I have just dove into just a lot of your publications and your recent podcast that you just mentioned, which was fantastic. And one theme that just keeps coming up is, I'm saying this with, uh, with true honesty, that you are one of the most empathetic physicians that I've ever heard speak. 
I'm being honest. You know, you just you discussed in your Cleveland Clinic video how when you interview patients, you're speaking soul to soul. And it just touched me so deeply. And I can just see it all over your face when you speak in that story that you just talked about when you were in middle school about really not wanting others to be lonely. Like you just truly feel other people's feelings and it's palpable. So true. No poker face here, that's for sure. <laughs> I know. And I, I just love it. Thank you, Carol. Yeah, truly. And so my question for you is, how do you maintain this drive? Or how do you maintain this empathy during difficult times? And maybe those difficult times are personal difficult times or professional difficult times or pandemic difficult times. How do you maintain that? It's come to a head, I would say, probably in the last several months, uh, where it's been taxed. Up until all of this happened, how I maintain that is to have people around me that think like me. So I'm not talking about groupthink, but my whole team outside, you might hear them giggling. I mean, honestly, it's like a family. We leave no man behind or woman behind at the end of the day. We make sure that the last person goes out with a second to the last person. And they do it truly from their heart. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it's luck or maybe it's providence or maybe it's a little of both that I find the people I need around me. And I guess people who don't have that thought don't really get attracted to the work that I do. So that's okay. They can do what they want to do, but I have the people around me who help me do what I want to do. And it's true. I remember I was doing the communication skills course and, you know, you're supposed to be able to reflect on how you do things, right? So that you can teach others. And and they said, so how do you do that? I'm like, I looked into their eyes and I saw their soul. I'm like, and they're like, no, no, what are the skills? I'm like, um, I don't know what you mean by that, right? Wow. So I guess I've learned better to articulate what that means. So when people ask me, I'm able to share that with them. But to the point of how do I maintain it? You know, I worked with Rita Pappas on that hospital. That was a scary time. She's an amazing leader. And then I've worked in the COVID ICU quite a bit. And even last week, while we are seeing this fifth wave, and there's a lot of mistrust of the health system. And I will share with you that this was probably the hardest week in my career in the ICU. Not because of how sick the people are, but more that no matter what skills I use and how hard I try, I'm not getting through with the trust that needs to be there so that they believe that I wish the best for them. So that has been, you know, when you talk about a core value for me is my integrity and my empathy that with most I'm still doing okay, but it's those few where I feel like I'm failing. And so now, now how I'm staying resilient is just to look within and to say, okay, I am doing my best. There's nothing I can do. And I'm actually not watching the news anymore because it doesn't help me. So this this is how I'm surviving now. And I'm, again, just thriving through relationships with people like you, these conversations where I'm not alone. I, I know we're all feeling this. So we we will get through this and be changed forever, I'm sure. That's just so powerful and so moving. And with you being in the ICU, you're feeling it, right? I'm, I'm a minimally invasive GYN surgeon. I'm in the OR. I have a little bit of a bubble around me, but you're seeing these patients and you're feeling it. And I hear your words in that you just said right now, you just said how I'm failing them, meaning you take this personal. We all do. And it's not 
you, right? It's a million other factors, but we can't help but take it personal. So your emotions ring true for a lot of us. And thank you for being so vulnerable and transparent with that, that response. We have to talk about it. Um, because I think, especially people who are starting their careers now, who are who trained during the pandemic, right? And they have not had the privilege of those normal relationships because it's not normal anymore. And I've seen that the generations after me are also very empathetic, very well-rounded physicians, men and women. And I'm very proud to see that. Yet they're not having the same developmental experience in the early part of their careers that I have had. So they don't have a track record they can say showed that it worked because it's nothing's working now. I mean, it is sometimes, but I, you know, in this month, I'm telling you, it very little is working. Again, hopefully it'll get better. Yeah, it wears on you for sure. It's so, so true. And you know, I, I keep going back to this, like seeing patients' souls. Like your words are ringing so deep to me and you're making me reflect on my own practice. Okay. Truly. And for like when you talk about really like looking into a patient's eyes and hearing their story, that takes a true presence. Like you have to be present with them, right? You have to listen for the sake of listening. And so many of us are listening for the sake of responding because we're here to fix. But I can tell you have a true presence. Can you talk to, to us about how you get there? Like sometimes when we have such a busy schedule, I've got a million things going on. My email doesn't stop. How do you find that presence? What do you do mentally to get yourself there? Again, having a team around me who can take care of some of the difficult stuff that I can sort of put to them, sharing sometimes some of the hard things because, you know, we take care of patients with complex conditions. So not to label them with the condition, but to care for them. And, you know, they hold me in check too. At the end of the day, it's very hard. But I I have to say when I walk into a room and it usually starts with a joke or something and I don't mean to be like, ha ha, (laughs) it's more like, you know, it's just treating them as people, right? Yeah. Oh, how was your trip? And oh, do you belong to this person? Especially the whole, are you the girlfriend, the wife, the, you know, right? So how do you belong to this person, right? Yeah. So just starting off with sort of a lighthearted comment. And then there's always uh, clothing and shoes and jewelry we can comment upon. And so that yeah. sort of gets me, I mean, it's just kind of what I do anyway. And so it just shows, I hope that I'm just a human. And then I think humor works too. I mean, I'm just... I don't try to be funny, but I think just maybe lighthearted is just what happens naturally most of the time, unless I'm really tired and hungry. So then it just becomes people hanging out, talking about a medical condition that I hope I can help them with. Yeah. I love that. Like just understanding that all the patients that we're working with, they're people, they have their own stories, they have their own fears, they have their own emotions and taking them outside of just the disease process, right? And making them human. I That resonates really deeply. Thank you for those words. Absolutely. And I have to tell you my own personal experience. So my father had lung cancer when I was 23. I was just, uh, no, no, he died when I was 23. So like uh, 18 months prior, I was a medical student and he got lung cancer. And, you know, as in so many cases, non-smoker, not that it's anybody's fault, you know, nobody deserves cancer, of course. Being on the other side, I literally was going to be a pediatrician prior to that. And then seeing him short of breath, I, I actually, that's another reason I wanted to be a pediatrician. I couldn't handle seeing people who are short of breath. Yeah. 
But then I went to the ICU and I worked as a sub intern. And I worked with a really tough as nails guy. You know, that's when, you know, you had to be in the jaws of death almost to make it to the ICU. And I was a fourth year medical student and I was good at it. And I, I, and I was able to communicate with the people who had tubes in their lungs and, you know, we'd squeeze and, you know, I got to know them. Then I realized, you know, maybe that is my calling, right? So I went into pulmonary and critical care. I don't think there's any coincidences to that at all. So I, that personal experience, I, I do actually, when I say I look into their souls, which is a strange thing to say still, I feel like I'm talking to whatever it is that they have inside that is in common with what my father had, you know? Wow, I have goosebumps. That's really an amazing story and really intense. And thank you again for sharing that. And it just makes me feel like, like I've heard you talk about your purpose, right? And like this, you're living your purpose and truly and taking the space to understand what your purpose is and reflecting on that is just really, really important. And thank you for your work. It's, a, it's, a, it's amazing how your trajectory changed when you just sat and listened to what you couldn't ignore, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Correct. <laughs> wow. Thinking about that purpose, right? Again, you talk about reflecting on that and understanding your own purpose. Has your purpose changed at all over time, or has it always been pretty consistent throughout your career? Oh, it has changed. And sometimes circumstances change it for you. (laughs) So being the head of a leadership program, I have always, always been able to lift up others to see their best potential. So I get the feedback. I just don't ask for it, but I get that feedback that it works, that I'm able to really tap into what is their strength and really open it and show it to them, right? And almost, uh, you know, Dr. Erzurum, whom you've already interviewed, again, she was the person I imprinted on when I was a fellow. Literally, I was her duckling. (laughs) she, She gives me so much credit, but literally she was an absolute inflection point in my career and life. And then, uh, you know, being an advocate, I I ran this program. And then I thought to myself, well, I also need to prove that I can be that leader of the traditional sense, right? So I've, I've not held back from going for leadership positions. And there are many people who are interested in these positions. So you may not get the one that you think that you'll do best in. So I haven't gotten some positions that I've gone for. And, you know, sometimes they're visible what others might consider failures. And now I would say that, just as I tell other people, that it's really your job to go for the things that you think you'd be good at and you know that you'd be good at. So whether I'd gotten it or not, I knew I would be good at it. So that's not the question. It's circumstances which perhaps are propelling us to where we should be. And it takes time to get to that point, but I think this year, being at a place where I have all those titles that you will probably mention, mm-hmm. I don't feel like I have anything to prove. You know, I I will be where I need to be at the right time. So I kind of trust at this point, and I'm open to what's next. So that I would say is probably a big change in the last few years. And I, I think getting to the goal of professor was probably something that was a tangible goal. And once I did that, 
And I got that because of all my advocacy and my education and sponsorship and mentorship. I feel like, okay, I'll just do more of that and I'll, I'll just wait to see what happens. I'll, I'll be where I need to be at the right time. Wow, I have so much to break down. That was amazing. You have such confidence. Like you said, you're like, I know I'm good enough whether I get it or not. Like that confidence, we need to instill in other women, right? We are good enough. Like we should be at the table. Like stop self-doubting ourselves, right? Yes. Yeah, you will not get it if you don't go for it. I mean, that's a given, right? Yeah. And going for it will always, always give you some experience that you didn't realize. And But most importantly, when you go for it, don't fake who you are. Yeah. Don't fake who you are. I'm, I don't know if I should say it, but you should. I'm like full Monty me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Okay. On a, on a very emotional level, right? <laughs> yes. I love it. <laughs> but yeah, you, I can't, I can't hide who I am. And so if it's not meant to, it's not the cocktail for the moment for that position. I'm good with that. But that's how this vice chair came about because people know what I bring to the table and I'm so incredibly fulfilled in that role right now. It's amazing. Okay, so what I'm hearing is, you know, this deep ability emotionally to connect with people and professionally develop. So I feel like that the next thing to talk about then are boundaries because I think we can give and give and we can deeply emotionally connect with someone, but somewhere in there let's say we're let's say we have our young learners our residents our medical students here listening today or even staff that are just emotionally tired what would you suggest for them to emotionally connect with the patients but yet not give it all away or not to come home completely deflated or empty emotionally so how do you practice boundaries that serve you as a person and keep you you know just at high at such active at such a high level it's an active practice, to be honest with you. Um, it's easy to go down a journey that you didn't ask for. I will always go back to the team idea because when you have someone to discuss something with, like, you know, am I missing something? They're like, no. My colleague will say they're just a little extra. <laughs> <laughs> and that sort of makes us laugh about it. You're like, yeah, that was a little extra. And one of the things I also tell my junior colleagues when they are, you know, feeling bad about how somebody is doing or they can't figure it out, I say, you know, you didn't give this person this condition, but you're trying to help them. So just the idea that you can't own it, you can help, but you can't own it. And some conditions are bad, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm in pulmonary most of the time. I'm not in the lung cancer space so much. So most of the time people get better. But if I can't get them better, I'll keep trying. But at some point, I'll say, you know, I, I've done what I can. I'll help you. But I'm at the point where I, have, I don't have an idea what else to do next. But I will still see you because maybe we'll come up with something. I never abandon people. I never leave them be. And then from the standpoint of mentoring, I think more recently, I am learning that I cannot do everything. And this is probably more recently and because of everything else. Just saying no, I'm carving time in my schedule that are called focus time and then I am sticking to it to the best that I can but saying yes is so easy and saying no is not so I'm, I'm pushing things off to the new year it's close enough <laughs> I can say you know 2022 sounds good call me then <laughs> <laughs> wait I think I heard a real nugget of amazingness in there the focus time tell me about that I hear CEOs have this you know so like you need CEO time to think so 
You know, I don't I don't know that doctors put that in our schedule, but yes, we need to learn from you. So tell us about this time. Yeah, I, I've and I learned this from Dr. Dweek, who's my institute chair too. Like he just blocks off time so that people I actually don't I manage my own calendar, which is a mistake lately because I'm missing things all the time. But other than that, I will block, you know, what was really fun is I filled a doodle poll of my availability and I never took off the stuff that I reserved, which is really kind of cool. But this new program that we have in our email management system, which says, is a little creepy and says, hi, looks like you're busy today. I'm like, I am. Stop talking to me. Yeah. Stop reading my mind. Looks like looks like you have other things coming up. Shouldn't you be studying? I'm like, oh, my God, stop talking to me. I can't stand that thing. It pops up. You've had zero time to think this week. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for letting me know. Speak for yourself. <laughs> Stupid computer. Yeah. <laughs> Bunnies. Right, I know what you mean. So, but I've kind of I'm like, okay, you think I should have focus time now? Damn it, I'm having focus time. Thank you. Yes. Well, you, you know, you help learners. You're a vice chair. You're a professor. You have led a professional development program for years. The one thing we have not mentioned is that you're a mom, yeah. and I hear there are triplets and yes. a little boy and a boy. He's probably not so little anymore. Right, right. Tell us how has it been. What do you say to young learners about? Should I have a family? I don't think I can have a family. What do you What do you say to that? You know, I waited till after training was done. That's one thing uh, that was e- easier, I think. But I am so in ad- admiration of all my colleagues who are not waiting. They, you, there's a time to have a child and you have to have it when it's time to have a child. So good for you. And it's forcing us to do better, to accommodate that, not just accommodate that, integrate that into everything we do. I mean, we are way overdue for that, number one. Second of all, yes, I had girls born at the same time 17 years ago. So they're 17 now. They're seniors in high school, and they have a younger brother who's only 15 months younger than them. So one junior, three seniors in high school. And I am unashamed and to say that they are probably the best people I know. And I don't know what I did to earn the opportunity to be their mother, but I'm very thankful for it because I've learned so much from them and watching how they, I don't need to interfere at all. They've raised themselves literally, like, but with obviously good family support. Like we're a three generation household. I'm not going to basically minimize any of that contribution, but truly who they are as people is unbelievable. And I've learned to be a good parent, which is just let them be and just don't let them burn themselves, like burn their fingers or whatever. Like, and they study, they, they work hard, they learn from around them. And I guess I'm just very fortunate and grateful. And I am going to miss them next year, which is why I'll be saying yes to more things maybe again in another year. <laughs> but actually, I'm just going to go visit them. I just want to see who they become because I'm just so proud. That is beautiful. You have a lot of children very close in age. That's yes. that's amazing. So, you know, you mentioned having a three-level household, right? Like you had, uh, your, is it, was it your parents who helped out when no, they were growing it's, up? They're my parents now after marriage. So they're yeah. my in-laws. Your in-laws, And yeah. I hate using that word because there's some, you know, connotation to it. But yes, three-generation household. And my sister-in-law, my husband's younger sister, is a primary care doctor here. And she brings her kids over every day and they're... So it's like it's it was it's a little bit like everybody loves Raymond, 
um, where the door is all like, who's here now? Oh, okay. Oh, but it was, a, <laughs> but now the I girls drive, so it's not as chaotic. So yes, it's it's we're never really lonely, which is nice. But I think that atmosphere has shaped who they are, obviously. Absolutely. You filled their house with love. You built your tribe around you. And that way you could continue to focus at work. And the kids always felt loved. And that's the most important thing. I highly recommend it if you can do it because it's nice because when you wonder about how you're doing as a parent and the the grandmother says, wow, you're doing a good job. They're good kids. You know, you have to find the right chemistry, of course. Not everybody is fortunate enough to have that. But I highly recommend a blended household. Hey, the Obamas did it. I will do anything Obama other, and Michelle. Other presidents did not. Yes. Just, yeah. But Obamas did it. And look how good their kids are, too. So I, I just think that if they're around more people who give them the gifts of what they give them, they're better in the long run. So exciting. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much again for spending your afternoon with us. You really, you really touched my heart today, and I greatly appreciate your time. Kara, it's been an absolute pleasure. Mary, thank you. And I hope somebody gets a little something out of this. If not, it's um, at least a few laughs, I hope. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I agree. I agree. Thank you for listening today. Join us again as we draw inspirations and insights from women doctors past, present, and future. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WPSA1. That's at WPSA and the number one. This podcast is supported by Cleveland Clinic's Women's Professional Staff Association as part of the Cleveland Clinic Centennial Celebration.